The trial following the murder of Franz Ferdinand always interested me. It was October of 1914, and Franz Ferdinand, the Archduke of Austria, the heir to the throne of the empire, had been murdered that previous June. A number of young Serbian men were on trial in Sarajevo, Bosnia, for this murder. Of course, that's where the murder had taken place, where the assassination had taken place. And these young men were on trial for what they had done. A young Bosnian Serb by the name of, and I'm going to butcher a lot of these names, so I'll try to stick to just saying last names. But in this case, Gavrilo Princip was the man, the young man who pulled the trigger twice and murdered Ferdinand and his wife, Sophie. Princip was at this trial, and he was with his colleagues who had also participated in this plot to kill Ferdinand. And what made it so interesting to me was that they didn't even intend to actually be alive for this. They, these young men had intended to kill themselves upon the completion of their duty, that is, upon the completion of the killing of Ferdinand. One of these young men, and we'll get to this story when we go over it in more detail later, one of these young men by the last name of Kabrinovich had tried to kill himself, but his cyanide tablet that he took in his mouth was too weak to actually kill him. So here these young men are, sitting in trial, in a place they never intended to be, in a situation that wasn't part of the plan. The plan was for them to kill themselves. They didn't even want to be alive for this part, yet here they are sitting in this trial, ostensibly defending themselves, but they're also thinking about what they had done. That courtroom must have been surreal, especially as we look back on it now. It was October of 1914, so to a certain degree, Princip and Kabrinovich already knew the ramifications of what they had done. World War I had started at the beginning of August, so they knew the part they had played in the outbreak of war. But it was not known at the time the extent of the violence of the First World War, the extent of the death and the geopolitical ramifications, the mental strain it put on soldiers and others all around the world, the great changes it would make for the world for the entire century. So as we look back on Princip and Kabrinovich in this trial now, we know the weight, we know the burden, we know the consequences of the actions they took on that day, on June 28, 1914. The assassination of Franz Ferdinand sparks a series of events that lead to the outbreak of World War I. And these series of events is called the July Crisis of 1914. And this new, ser- this new podcast series that I'm starting today will look at the July Crisis of 1914. It will go into detail to explain what happened and how an entire world war came from this one assassination. And what we'll also do in this podcast series is take a close look at all of the different arguments for who is to blame. Can we lay the fault at the feet of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, who, as we'll see in later episodes, sent an ultimatum to Serbia for their part in the Ferdinand assassination plot? Or was it Serbia's fault? Or it could possibly have been Germany's fault. This is one country that historians commonly ascribe much blame to for their aggression in starting World War I. Or it could have been Russia's fault and France and some of the other allies for 
some of their aggression leading up to the war and some of the ways they didn't cool things off. This has been a question, the question of culpability, of who is to blame for the start of World War I. This has been a question that to this day remains contested and it remains rich for new insights and new arguments. One of those countries that is possibly to blame is Serbia. Serbia has a complicated history. Serbia, Serbia's history in the lead-up to these events is complicated, yet we can't understand World War I without going into it. Often I think this is lost on some of the narratives about World War I is this complicated history. And there's one his- historian, Christopher Clark, and his book, Sleepwalkers, that you have to read if you're going to understand the July crisis of 1914. And this is because Clark goes into great detail to explain the Serbian culture and the, the Serbian narratives that were alive at the time that led to this assassination of Franz Ferdinand. Serbia at this time had an ideology, an intense ideology. It was an ideology of nationalism. And in many cases, it could be seen as an ideology of ethno-nationalism of a nationalism of the Serb people in an ethnic sense. Now, many historians and many people who write about this era refer to this ethnic ideology as a Slavic ideology, referencing the Slav people. Clark mostly uses Serb, and I think uh, I'm not an expert on this topic by any means, but I will just use the word Serb today. Now, this ideology extended back centuries to before the Ottomans had taken over control of, of the Balkan territory. It goes back to the late 14th century, when there was a knight who had shown great valor in killing an Ottoman sultan in one of the most important battles, the Battle of Kosovo against the Ottomans. While the Serbs lost this war to the Ottomans, a myth grew about this knight because of the valor that he showed in taking on and killing a sultan. And in him laid the myth, the story, the ideology of the Serbian people. And the day he slew this sultan was June 28th. June 28th, an important day for Serbian history, a day that would be one of celebration, a day of one that Serbs would take great ethnic pride in, a day they would, they would take great national pride in, It was also the day in 1914 when Franz Ferdinand was assassinated, June 28, 1914. But there's a reason this myth grew and this sense of nationalism grew in Serbian culture. Serbia was a poor country. It was a country that lacked education, and it was a largely rural country, even after the great urbanization of the West in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, it remained a largely rural country. And in this rural areas that lacked literacy, great myths spread through poetry, through songs, through stories. And this is how the myth of this knight lived on. This is what Serbian people took great pride in and who they were as a people. And they had been occupied for a long time by the Ottomans, And as the Austro-Hungary Empire took place or took shape to the north, 
they then also had a neighbor to the north that was also threatening to their people. It was in this milieu that nationalists were formed within Serbia. It was in this, within this culture that an ideology was formed, a, an aggressive ideology of pan-Serbianism, this idea that the Serbs throughout the Balkans, they had a right to their own country. They had a right, they had a right to their own country. They had a right to self-government. And movements grew in this time for this to be done, for this to be created. There was something else to Serbian culture that has to be understood if we are going to make any sense of the assassination of Franz Ferdinand. And that is a culture of regicide. Regicide is just a fancy word to describe the killing of a king or the killing of a leader. And in this case, Serbia had a culture of regicide. And this is where Clark starts his book. And this is with, in 1903, the killing of the king of Serbia. This assassination took place one evening. King Alexander had been prepared for an assassination for a while. He knew that there was a plot stirring among the people, among the military leaders, for his head. And so he had set up extra guards all throughout the palace. Yet one night he's just in the palace, in his bed, when he knows something is happening. He's with his, his wife, Queen Draga, and that's a whole story in and of itself as to why people wanted to kill Alexander was because of his choice in wife. She had been an unpopular choice, to say the least. She was much older than him. There was concern that she couldn't conceive. And there was also concern that she was promiscuous. In fact, there's a quote that really sums up this view, and that is from Alexander's Minister of the Interior, and this is what he said, quote, Sire, you cannot marry her. She has been everybody's mistress, mine included. End quote. This was one of the things that made him super unpopular with the military. He was an embarrassment, supposedly, to the people who didn't like him. He was an embarrassment to the country, and he was ruining the country. He was ruining Serbia, supposedly. And one of the main reasons the military didn't like him was because of a cutback in funding to the military. And so this movement formed largely within the Serbian military to kill Alexander for a regicide. In the night that it happened, Alexander and Drago were in their room and they heard something and they knew something bad was taking place. So they hid in the closet. Meanwhile, conspirators to kill the king and his wife were making their way past the guards, the many guards that Alexander had posted all throughout the palace. However, they were not a match for the soldiers and others who were there to kill the king. These assassins made their way to the royal bedroom, only to find it empty. So what did they do? Well, they forced a bodyguard to call out to the king and queen. And in this way, they were able to find out where they were in the closet. Upon finding them, well, it's a pretty brutal what happened. The king and queen, of course, were murdered, and their bodies weren't treated that well. In fact, they were thrown out of a window onto the ground below. 
This is the culture in which the assassination of Franz Ferdinand took place. It's a pretty rough culture, (laughs) where killing and political assassination and plot and conspiracy are just part of it. The new Serbia, to come out of this regicide, to come out of this assassination of Alexander, had to deal with the aggressive military conspirators, the same ones that had participated in the takedown of Alexander. The prime minister in this period was Nikola Pasic. Now, Pasic would come to play an important role in the events of World War I. He would be prime minister of Serbia during the July crisis of 1914. He would be the one making the Serbian decisions that would have such a big influence on the outbreak of war. He was also prime minister in this era immediately following the assassination of Alexander, and he would also play a big role in the decisions that were made in the build-up to the assassination of Ferdinand. And one of the things that Passage had to deal with was the same military conspirators who had taken down Alexander. Of course, there was always the possibility that these conspirators would turn on the current government. Yet, they would prove to be an important network to tap into at times in the pursuit of Serbian domestic and foreign policy in this time period. So this kind of dance had to be played, this kind of dance that Pasic had to play with these military conspirators. There was a big question among the global community in this time of what Serbia was and what their goals were as a country, especially in terms of foreign policy. Was the government pan-Serbian? That is, did they have a foreign policy of uniting all Serbs in the Balkans under one government, under one country? The global community knew that this military network, these, these radicals, this was their goal. But the question was, was this the policy of the government? If you were to listen to the way the government spoke, it certainly was. And this was largely because if the Serbian government was to remain popular with the Serbian people, remember I mentioned earlier that this myth of Serbia, of nationalism, was alive and well in this time period. And so if the Serbian government was going to to remain popular with Serbian people, it had to keep up an appearance in this way. There were a few crises that helped to build this national, this nationalistic worldview to strengthen it among the people and also to strengthen it among the government itself. The biggest of these was the Austro-Hungarian annexation of Bosnia-Herzegovina in 1908. Bosnia is a neighbor to Serbia on, on the west, to the west of Serbia, and For years, it had been pretty much under the rule of Austria-Hungary, even if it wasn't officially annexed. But in 1908, Austria-Hungary officially annexes Bosnia. And this creates a national crisis in Serbia because its neighbor to the north, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, has just expanded into a territory officially that the Serbian people feel like is theirs because of the ethnic Serbs that are in Bosnia. This arouses huge nationalist sentiments within Serbia. And among those who are aroused by this, who are angered by this, are a number of Bosnian Serbs, the same ones I mentioned at the beginning who were sitting trial because they assassinated Franz Ferdinand. 
So what is the Serbian government's response to this annexation? At first, there is talk of a war with Austria-Hungary, but cooler heads prevailed when they realized that this wasn't a realistic option at the time. However, what does come out of this is an explosion in the growth of the underground conspiratorial networks of Serbian people. And these networks are aggressively nationalist. They are aggressively pan-Serbian. And their goal, as I've said before, is to create a country for Serbs. And the most famous of these organizations is called the Black Hand. And you know, with a name like the Black Hand, it comes with a, comes with a symbol, with a sign that is equally as menacing with a, a skull. Just look it up online and you'll see what I'm talking about. And this Black Hand organization grows and grows from this point on. There's no official numbers because the Black Hand organization, as uh, you might be able to guess, didn't really keep many records as a secret underground organization. But thousands join. And we'll get back to the Black Hand. But in terms of the response to the annexation of Bosnia by the Serbian government, well, like I mentioned, they've kind of had to back off. But something else developed in this time period, and we're talking around 1910 at this point, and that is that Italy attacks the Ottoman province of Libya. And with this attack on the Ottoman Empire, it creates an opportunity for Serbia and other Balkan countries to oust the Ottomans. And so then we have what's called the First Balkan War, where Serbia, Bulgaria, and others, they drive the Ottomans out of the Balkans. This is followed immediately by a second Balkan war in which Bulgaria turns on its former allies to gain more territory for itself. However, Serbia put down this attempt by Bulgaria. And the result of all this is an increase in Serbian confidence in their military ability and also an increase in confidence of these pan-Serbian underground networks in their ability to see their goals come true. This is the setting for the plot to take down Franz Ferdinand. There had been talk of assassinating the Austrian governor in Bosnia, but it was decided that this wouldn't make enough of a mark. Rather, it would need to be a bigger target. One night, a group of young radicals, young Serbian radicals, they were in Belgrade. At this time, it was common in Belgrade and other places in Europe for coffee houses to be places of political discussion. You know, I often wish this were still true today. I guess in some places it can be, but often, you know, we're just in coffee shops now with our headphones on, hopefully listening to a podcast like this one, or doing our homework or listening to music and more or less keeping to ourselves. But in Belgrade in 1914... Coffee houses, uh, coffee houses with cool names like the Little Goldfish or the Acorn Garland were full of political discussion. And most of it, given the fact that this is 1914 in Serbia and Belgrade, most of it of the nationalist variety, of the pan-Serbian variety. And it is here that Princip and Kabrinovic are sitting at a table that has a gaslit lamp on it. And a note, a newspaper clipping is passed around. And in this newspaper clipping, it is an announcement that Franz Ferdinand will be visiting Sarajevo, Bosnia, soon. In fact, just a few months from this time. 
This was April of 1914, and of course he visits in late June. And Princip and Kabrinovich see an opportunity. They are excited. The table is quiet for a moment. Here's their chance. Here's their chance to do something for their ideology, a chance to do something for their country, to do something for Serbia. And it's here where the idea is hatched to kill Franz Ferdinand. At least the report of this nighttime meeting at this coffee shop is the recollection of one of the conspirators. That actually brings up an important point, and that is that much of the details surrounding the development of this plot to assassinate Ferdinand are murky. And that is because the even historians uh, who have been studying this for over a hundred years, even they can't come to a consensus about many of the important details of how the plot to assassinate Franz Ferdinand actually came together. I read an interesting historiography recently of these different views. Historiography is just a fancy word for a summary of all the different uh, articles and books that have been written on a particular topic or a particular time period. And in this historiography, the author laid out two strands of thought that have developed about who was responsible for the assassination of Franz Ferdinand, and two strands of thought about who was ultimately who was responsible for the development of the plot to assassinate Ferdinand. One of these strands focuses on these Bosnian Serbs that I've been talking about, people like Princip and Kabrinovic. And in this strand of thought, these young Bosnian Serbs are responsible for creating the idea to assassinate Ferdinand. And the help they were to get from upper-level Serbian officials, that help was merely tangential to their plot, to their plan. There's another whole strand of thought, and that is that while, yes, Princip and Kabrinovic are a big part of the story, ultimately the plot came from higher-level military officials in Serbia, people like Apis, who was head of Serbian intelligence in the military. Apis wasn't his real name, It was actually a nickname for this individual because of his strength, of his great brawny physique. Apis alluded to an Egyptian god that was a bull. And that's why with his brawny physique, he was, why why he was called this. And I'll just use Apis on today's show just for the sake of clarity and brevity. In the case of this second strand, it was Apis who was the primary engineer, if you will, behind the plot to kill Franz Ferdinand, and he merely used people like Princip and Kabrinovic in his plot to take down the Archduke. As I tell the story today, I'll kind of do my best to explain what it is I've read about how it happens and what my research has pointed to, but just know that uh, I might be doing an amalgamation of the two strands of thought and that this is a really rich topic with plenty more to read about how the plot developed and who was responsible for the plot. Now, why Franz Ferdinand? Again, he was the heir to the throne in Austria-Hungary. He actually threatened the pan-Serbian movement in a way you wouldn't expect. He was actually in favor of loosening some of the control over Bosnia and actually to possibly even creating a sort of third state within the Austro-Hungarian Empire. But this actually threatened the pan-Serbian movement because it would lessen the need for a radical solution to their problem. It would lessen the motivation behind the idea of creating a country in which all Serbs would be under the rule of Serbia itself. And if, if they were given more local autonomy, there would be less need for a radical, forceful solution. 
And so killing Franz Ferdinand also helps in this way. It gets rid of the possibility of his ideas for a loosening of control over Bosnia. But most importantly, the killing of Franz Ferdinand would create a statement. It would spark national controversy. It would spark international controversy. And it would give the pan-Serbian movement, take it one step closer to its goal. There's the glory that comes that these young idealists have in mind, the glory that would come from assassinating someone of Franz Ferdinand's stature. And so this is also a motivation, the chance to go down in history like that famous knight that we talked about who murdered the Ottoman sultan. And so it is here that this plot idea is hatched. And the next step is to obtain weapons. It is to obtain the ability to carry out this assassination, to receive training, to put a plan together. And to do this, what they do is they go, these young men, what they do is they go and ask for help from those underground organizations that we talked about earlier, like the Black Hand. And some Serbian officials get caught up in this. And I'm going to pause here for a second with this part of the story and leave it for later in this episode because this is really one of the most controversial parts of this story. How involved was the Serbian government with this assassination plot? This is a question that Austria-Hungary is going to ask itself over the course of July of 1914 as they determine the right response against Serbia after Franz Ferdinand is assassinated. Princip and Kabrinovich and the others who are part of this plot sneak their way into Bosnia. Remember, Bosnia is on the western border of Serbia. They get help from a sort of underground railroad, if you will, of the Black Hand. They get help crossing the border, and once they're across the Bosnian border, they get help to hide their weapons and to make their way to Sarajevo. While Princip and Kabrinovich were in Sarajevo, before they had participated in the plot to assassinate Franz Ferdinand, at night they would go visit the grave of another Serbian who had attempted to kill, a few years earlier, the Bosnian governor. He had failed, and he had shot himself. And it is here that Princip gains the courage, or attempts to gain the courage, to do what he's going to do the next day. Can you just imagine Princip sitting at the graveside? It's nighttime, it's dark, and he's trying to talk himself into what it is he's going to do. He's young. Remember, he's only 19 years old. This is what Princip said about going to the grave. He said this at the trial that was to come after he had assassinated Ferdinand. Here's what he said. Quote, I often went at night to Zaryich's grave. I managed to stay there all night and thought over our affairs and our wretched condition, and then I made up my mind. At his grave, I swore to myself, that I would do as he had done at all costs. End quote. Kabernovich had a similar understanding and a similar motivation for going to visit Zaryich's grave. Here's what he said, also speaking at the trial. Quote, I also went to Zaryich's grave when I came to Sarajevo. The grave was neglected, and I tidied it up so that it should look better. There, I firmly decided to end like him. End quote. Trifko Grabez was another young Bosnian Serb who was a part of the plot to assassinate Franz Ferdinand. Just like Kabrinovich and Princip, he was a young student caught up in the ideology of nationalism. Christopher Clark even points out that these young men were ripe to be adopted 
into the nationalistic movements of Serbs at the time because of their young idealism. Some of these young men were poor in health and lived as if they had nothing to lose. An assassination attempt on the heir apparent to the Austrian throne was risking one's life. These young men lived as if they could risk their life with this assassination attempt. Grabez spoke to this nationalism at the trial that followed the assassination. Here's what he said. Quote, Princip merely said that the heir apparent was coming and would hold military maneuvers here. That infuriated me, that he should hold army exercises in our country as to how to attack Serbia, and so I myself decided it was worth destroying him. And then he was asked by the judge over the trial, why him specially? And Grabez said, quote, because he was, speaking generally, the evil genius of the Slavs, the man prepared against the Yugoslav idea. Such a man ought not to exist. Such a man had to be destroyed. End quote. The word that's used there to refer to genius in evil genius is the Serbian word Zlada, and I'm sure I'm mispronouncing it. However, it could also be translated instead of genius to mean ghoul. This is what Grabez and the other young nationalists thought of Franz Ferdinand. They thought of him as a ghoul, as an enemy to their project. That's why they chose him. And it is now June 28th, 1914. As the Grabez quote indicated, Franz Ferdinand was in Bosnia because he was there to observe military maneuvers of the Austro-Hungarian military. He was also there to spend time with his wife. They were a couple that the Austro-Hungarian Empire, the royalty, the Habsburgs, uh, they never looked fondly upon Sophie. She didn't come from royal blood, and so she was never treated like she was royalty, even after marrying the heir of the empire. She wasn't really allowed to have a public face at many of the royal functions, but here in Bosnia, this was different. And so this was a special time for Ferdinand and Sophie to be together. The Bosnian rulers had put together had put together a special time for Ferdinand to make his face shown, and in this time, since they were away from Austria-Hungary, Ferdinand could do so with his wife Sophie, and so this was a really special trip for the two. And they were it was the end, very end of their trip, that is June twenty eighth, and they were scheduled to go home soon. They had left their children behind, and there was just one last thing they were going to do, and that is make an appearance in Sarajevo. On the morning of June 28th, Franz Ferdinand and his wife get off the train. They get into a motor, uh, a motorcade that uh, local officials had put together. And they are going to drive down the center of Sarajevo and make their way to town hall. The main street that plays a major role in these events is called the Appel Key. And the assassins had put together a plot to carry out this conspiracy along this street. There were six assassins who were ready to do the work, and they were all placed at different points along the street to make sure that if one or two or three missed or all of a sudden lacked courage to shoot or to shoot their pistol, they were also carrying bombs or they lacked the courage to throw their bomb, then another person would be there to also have a chance to do it. And as Franz Ferdinand and Sophie make their way down the Appel Key, the first assassin flinches. He's stuck in his boots and he fails to take his shot. However, Kerbrinovich is nearby and he throws the bomb. Now he misses his target. However, 
It's possible Franz Ferdinand slaps it away. And the bomb lands beneath the car, behind Ferdinand's car, and blows a hole in the street. With this, the Ferdinand motorcade speeds its way to town hall. Upon throwing the bomb, Kabrinovich jumped down into the river that ran along the Apelki. Uh, unfortunately for his sake, uh, he was trying to kill himself so he couldn't be captured. Uh, the river was com- really dry. Uh, there was hardly any water running through it, given that it was summer. And in the, in the riverbed, he takes his cyanide tablet. Unfortunately, the cyanide tablet is too weak, and uh, he fails to be killed by it. Instead, only it makes him very sick. And he's lying there in the riverbed, and he's captured. This is how he was able to be at the trial to follow the the same trial that we mentioned at the beginning of this episode to open it. Once at Town Hall, Ferdinand at first seems like he's has everything under control that and that he's composed. And there's this very awkward lunch, and this is very awkward moments where the Bosnian mayor starts to give his speech to Ferdinand, just as if everything is normal. Ferdinand, of course, interrupts this, and there's a quote where he basically is like, what is happening? I just got a bomb thrown at me. What is going on? The motorcade decides to change things up at this point. And so the motorcade makes a plan. They are going to do a different route than they would have done. Ferdinand is known for his respectability on this day, the valor that he shows An example of this is that he decides he wants to go to the hospital to see those who were wounded by the bomb to check in on how they're doing. And so this is what they decide. They change the route. They are going to go straight down the Apelki and make their way over to the hospital this way instead of what was the planned route, which was to take a right-hand turn halfway down the Apelki. So the motorcade takes off down the Apelki. And it's going fast at this point, too fast for there to be any clean shots taken. However, something goes wrong, and this is a famous part of the story. For some reason, there had been miscommunication, or there was no communication, and the driver of the motorcade takes a right turn at the spot that it was originally supposed to take a right turn, but remember, they had changed the route to keep going fast to avoid the assassins to be going too fast for there to be a clean shot, to be a bomb thrown. And with the turn, the driver is instructed, stop, stop, turn around, what are you doing? This is not the way you're supposed to be going. This is back in 1914, and this is right when cars were first invented, and so they weren't great at uh, making turns or of quickly changing course. So by the time the car stops and starts to make its way back to the Appel Key, what do you know? Princip is right there. And this had to be a surprising moment for Princip. Not only had he chosen the right spot to be, but he had chosen the spot where Ferdinand would be literally a sitting duck right in front of him. He looks up and he sees Ferdinand sitting in a car that is more or less stopped. He walks towards him. He aims his pistol, and he lets out two shots. Bang! Bang! Ferdinand is shot. His wife Sophie is shot. She buckles over, and she falls down on the floorboard. Meanwhile, Ferdinand has some breath to say a few words. His driver asks him, how are you doing? What happened? And he repeats, it is nothing. It is nothing. It is nothing. And he says this until he can speak no more. Ferdinand and Sophie are raced away, yet the deed is done. 
the crowd mobs Princip. He doesn't get a chance to kill himself because of how quickly he is taken down. And of course, this is again why Princip is able to be at his trial. But he had done his job. He had accomplished what he set out to do, and his name is remembered to this day. Now, it might not be in the way he would have wanted to be remembered, but nevertheless, his name is remembered. Upon shooting Franz Ferdinand, Princip was immediately taken in front of an Austrian judge. The judge wanted to ascertain what had just happened. He wanted to find out whether Princip and Kabrinovich were acting alone. They, they were the two, after all, to have been caught by the authorities, or whether or not they were part of a larger conspiracy. And so he sought to interrogate them. He didn't use torture. He didn't use some of the more uh, unethical techniques to elicit a confession or to uh, elicit more details. And Princip, at first, was hard to read, and he didn't give much. Princip and Kabritovich would be brought before the judge on the few days to follow June 28th. The judge wasn't too concerned that Kabrinovich and Princip were able to corroborate a story because they had been arrested and separated. However, Princip and Kabrinovich devised a special plan in order to get on the same page. They had learned how to communicate through knocking, and when in the same prison they were staying, they would communicate to each other in this way, by knocking on the wall. And with this communication, they were able to come up with a story that didn't give away too many incriminating details, and yet were able to stay on the same page in terms of what it was they were saying. However, there was a Black Hand member named Danilo Illich, who was also a recruiter for the Franz Ferdinand assassination, and he also goes before the judge. And Illich is the one who gave away the whole story. He was nervous, and when the Austrian authorities hinted that he might be treated better if he were to give away some information, he quickly jumped at the opportunity. He spilled the beans. Soon, Austrian authorities knew all who were involved in the plot, and they immediately sent out the word to have them arrested. They had their hands on the other members who were there that day to assassinate Franz Ferdinand, and they became aware of some of the higher-ups who were also responsible for putting the plot together. This is how uh, the authorities also became aware of some of the people who had transported Princip and others across the border and transported them to Sarajevo and hid their weapons. This is how they were also brought before the judge to stand trial. Part of what Austria was trying to do here was to ascertain just how guilty, just how responsible Serbia itself, that is the Serbian government, people like Prime Minister Pasic, if he was responsible at all for this plot assassination. This became a sticky question, a very important question. Because if Austria was able to find Serbia guilty for this plot, if they even had foreknowledge of it, it would give Austrian authorities more reason for an attack on Serbia, more reason for there to be repercussions against Serbia. There had been tension between the two, that is, Serbia and Austria-Hungary, for a while at this point. And of course, this has become an important question even to this day. That is, what guilt does Serbia bear? How culpable is Serbia for the outbreak of World War I? And something to answer for this question is how responsible is Serbia for the assassination of Franz Ferdinand? 
Because if you, to peek ahead a bit, if you see the dominoes that fall following the assassination of Franz Ferdinand, you see that this assassination is integral to the outbreak of World War I, because this is where the first domino falls. That is, this is the first event that sparks other events that lead to the outbreak of war. So the question is, how much did Passage and others do to bring about the assassination of Ferdinand? Now we can get this clear up front. Passage himself didn't have anything to do with it. In terms of organizing it, in terms of seeing it come to happen, that lay at the feet of the nationalistic movements that we've been talking about, the Black Hand, for example. Or to take the other theory, the other strand of thought that I've mentioned before, the blame mostly lies with the young Bosnian Serbs who sparked this whole assassination plot. So to talk about Pasic for a second, he didn't lead the assassination plot, he didn't organize it. However, there is strong evidence that he was aware of it. Some of this evidence comes from testimony of people who had talked to Posich, who said that he knew of a plot to take down and kill Franz Ferdinand. And so what did he do when he had this knowledge prior to the event? Well, he, he did try to shut down the border between Serbia and Bosnia because he had heard that there would be assassins traveling from Serbia to Bosnia. He tried to confiscate weapons at the border between Serbia and Bosnia. But the question is, did he do enough given his knowledge When it was all said and done, these actions didn't do anything because they were long after the time that the weapons and the assassins had crossed the border. Pasic, on the one hand, did want to stop the assassination. That's because while he did want Serbia to maintain its independence from Austro-Hungary, and while he shared a skepticism of Austro-Hungary, he didn't want to start a war necessarily at that time, or he didn't want Serbia to be responsible for starting a war with Austro-Hungary. And this is something that's a little complicated, something that Christopher Clark talks about. And that is about Pasic's view about what war would do for Serbia. Uh, like I mentioned, on the, he did seem to not want war on the one hand. But in a larger sense, uh, Christopher Clark points out that Pasic might indeed have wanted war in the sense that war might have been necessary to bring about some of his aims for Serbia, something to really stir things up in the, the European context. If Serbia wanted more power to itself, wanted more independence, more uh, power to the Serbian people, uh, a a large war might have been needed. Uh, At least this is what Christopher Clark thought Pasic might have been thinking at the time. At least in the immediate context, it's clear that Pasic's motivations are complicated. And that is because he, like I've said, didn't necessarily want war right away with Austro-Hungary. Part of this had to do with the fact that Serbia had just come out of the Balkan Wars and needed some time to recover. But it's also important to remember that Pasic was also motivated to not upset the nationalist movements like the Black Hand. And so this also partially explains why he didn't do enough, given that he had foreknowledge to stop people like Princip from crossing the border, why he didn't stop the assassination plot. And that is because he knew the power that the the groups like the Black Hand had And he knew they were part and parcel, that they were a huge part of Serbian public life and Serbian policy aims, and that he would need, possibly need to rely on, or at least not upset these types of nationalist movements if he were to achieve things in the future. 
There's another key bit of context that's important to understand why Posich operated as he did. There was always this tension between Posich and other members of the Serbian government and the nationalist movements. And this key context happened just a month prior, that is in May of 1914. This is after the conclusion of the Second Balkan War, when Serbia has defeated Bulgaria and has taken control of new territory. And there's a question that comes into play of whether or not the new territory would be under the rule of Serbian officials back in Belgrade, or whether the military would have more power to rule over these new territories. Of course, the military had been infiltrated strongly by the nationalist movements, and and they saw this as an opportunity to uh, further their cause. Meanwhile, Pasic and others in Belgrade didn't want to give up the chance to have more of a authority over these new provinces. A coup attempt was even discussed by the military to take over the government in Belgrade because of this conflict. The conflict was only settled when outside countries like Russia and France came in and sided with Belgrade and the military stood down. Because of this type of tension, Pasic had to play it safe when he was dealing with nationalist movements like the Black Hand because he knew how powerful they were. He had just experienced it the previous month when there was serious rumors and serious threats of a coup attempt. And so while he wanted to do what he could to stop the assassination of Franz Ferdinand, given that he had foreknowledge of it, he also didn't want to do too much to mess with what the Black Hand was doing. The other key question is if Pasic had warned the Austrian authorities about the upcoming assassination attempt. And here again, there is some evidence that he had done this, that he had, through a foreign minister, warned Austria. It wasn't a very clear warning, Again, Pasic was kind of playing both sides of the fence, trying to appease the Black Hand and at the same time try to do what he could to stop the assassination attempt. There are clear reasons as to why, after the fact, both Serbia and Austria would deny that Pasic had offered any form of foreknowledge of the assassination attempt. And this is because for Serbia, for example, they wanted to disassociate themselves fully from any knowledge of the assassination plot. They didn't want there to be any chance people would see them as responsible for the plot, so they wanted to take themselves away from it altogether. Meanwhile, Austria didn't want people thinking that it also had foreknowledge of the plot because then there would be accusations that they didn't do enough to keep Franz Ferdinand safe. And so that's kind of where it was left. The evidence seems to point to Pasic offering a vague warning about what was to happen, And yet there were plenty of reasons for both sides to not want to be too clear about actually what was communicated. I think it's clear that Pasic could have done more to have stopped it from happening. Does that make Pasic and other Serbian officials responsible for Ferdinand's assassination? Well, not directly. At least the most you could say is that they were indirectly responsible by not doing enough to stop something that they knew very well could happen. Now remember, as I explained this about how guilty Serbia was for the assassination of Ferdinand, remember what I said earlier, and that is that historians even today are mixed as to how much Serbia is actually to blame. And that is, you know, if that one strain of thought I was talking about earlier, where Apis, the leader of the Serbian military intelligence, uh, if he was truly the one 
who was pulling the strings to have Ferdinand killed, then that puts a lot more of the guilt on Serbia. If, however, it was truly just a plot of people like Kabrinovic and Princip, then all of a sudden it's much harder to blame Serbia for a lot of this. So even today, there's mixed opinions about how guilty Serbia is. And regarding some of the details about Kabrinovic and Princip meeting up in coffee shops to discuss all of this, about passing around a newspaper clipping and all of that, uh, even some of those details are a little hazy. So, for example, I talked about it here today being a, a night at a coffee shop where they passed around the note. But I've read even histories where it was actually over lunch. And so, you know, some of those details could be small. But all that's to say that this is a topic that is still historians go back and forth on a lot of the details. As to the story of Princip and Kabrinovic and Grabez, their part in the story ends here. It was actually a few months later that they were officially brought on trial for what they had done. In Austrian law, if you were under 20, you couldn't be given the death penalty. Actually, the biggest form of punishment you could get was up to 20 years in prison. And this is what they got, 20 years in prison. They would all die there because, as I've mentioned before, they were not in good health. So, when their sentences were handed out, the war had already begun, their work was done, and they would remain in prison, dying there. However, in terms of this being a turning point in history, what they had done would set off a chain of events that would lead to the outbreak of war. The next part of the story, that is when Austro-Hungary responds to what Serbia had done, we'll really see how the ball starts rolling towards war. Historians now, when they look back on this time period, they try to objectively look at how much Serbia was to blame for the outbreak of war, how much Serbia was to blame for the assassination plot. Austro-Hungary would not have the same sense of objectivity when they themselves tried to answer this question. The limited knowledge they had would suffice in their attempt to find Serbian guilt. And so as we'll see on the next episode, this was the next step towards war. Austro-Hungary creating a roadmap to lay the blame on Serbia for what had happened. I wanted to thank you for listening to this episode today. I have a number of citations that you'll be able to find in the show notes. I'll list a few of them here. First and foremost, Christopher Clark's Sleepwalkers, like I mentioned a few times in the show. Please read that on all of this. It's great. I also use Sean McMeekin's July 1914. It's also a great book, and it's also really worth checking out. As you've noticed, I kind of changed up my format of the show. On this week, I'm doing it more stream of consciousness, more, fr more free-flowing. And please let me know what you thought of the episode today, and please let me know how I can improve. Or if you liked the scripted versions better, I would love to know that as well. And uh, as usual, please subscribe to my podcast and please rate and review the show on iTunes. It, it really helps get the word out there about what I'm doing with the show. And please also contact me. My contact information is in the info. I appreciate all of you listening. Have a great one.